First Corinthians chapter 5 is where we are today, working our way through this letter. Read the whole chapter in just a few moments. I know a guy who pastored a small church somewhere on the border of North Dakota and Minnesota, so kind of out in the middle of nowhere. And there was a man in the church who used to freak my friend out. He'd he'd be up preaching, and this happened every single week. He'd be up preaching. While he was preaching, the guy who had one glass eye would always pop it out. He sat sort of right in front of him. He'd always pop out that glass eye, and then he'd polish it, and then he'd stick it back in while he was preaching. Well, after my friend had been there for a while, he learned that the glass-eyed guy, who was the most notable person in church, the biggest giver, deacon, if I remember the story correctly, self-identified pillar of the church, was known around the community for receiving stolen goods and fencing them through his auto salvage business. So what's a pastor to do? And what was the church to do? If you hear last week, Kevin taught on 1 Corinthians 4, and he quoted the Apostle Paul saying, I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. In our text today, that same Apostle seems to do a 360. After just having said he doesn't care if people judge him, he says, I've already passed judgment on somebody else, a member of the Corinthian church. Now, doesn't that seem hypocritical? And why shouldn't that man say... I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. And go back to my pastor friend. If he had confronted, and I don't remember whether he ever did, the crooked auto salvage business owner, what was to stop that guy from saying, I don't care if I'm judged by you? Jesus himself said, do not judge, or you too will be judged. So how can Paul pass judgment on this man and command the Corinthian church to do likewise? Is it that some sins are so disgraceful that the person must be judged? That's just too bad. We have to judge that one. Or was it only necessary to judge this man because his sin was so widely known? And if that's the case, is it okay to overlook relatively secret sins? Those are a few of the questions that we bring to our text today, which is a notoriously difficult one. Before we read it, let me give you a little background. In almost every place the Apostle Paul planted a church, he had to confront the sexual practices of its people. Sexual mores in Greece and Rome were very different from those in Israel. I'll give you an example. The great Greek statesman and orator Demosthenes, one of the most widely respected men of his day, once said, We have mistresses for pleasure, concubines to care for our body's daily needs, and wives to give us legitimate children and be faithful guardians of our households. You imagine an American statesman saying something like that? But that was the world into which the gospel of Christ came. The followers of Jesus brought into that world the sexual ethics of the Jews. No sex outside marriage. Of course, that marked them as different in a Greek and Roman culture, including in a a Corinthian society. For example, people who became Christians stopped going to the brothel. When we were in Ephesus, there's a sign. It's still there. It's actually in marble, pointing which way to the brothel. The brothel's this way. But people who became Christians stopped going to the brothel. They broke off homosexual relationships. They gave up their mistresses. 
They quit going to parties where everybody was hooking up, and their friends wondered what was wrong with them. So St. Peter writes, they're surprised that you don't join them in their reckless, wild living, and they heap abuse on you. They say, what's wrong with you? That religion of yours has made you such a bore. In chapters 5 through 7 of this letter, Paul speaks out on the subject of sex. When it comes to sex, the way taught by Moses, accepted by the Jews, and practiced by Jesus himself was the way Christ followers should take. Chastity outside marriage, faithfulness within. That was a challenge to the Corinthians and to all the Gentile churches, just as it's a challenge to Americans today. It was then and is now a countercultural way to live. But while Greek and Roman sexual mores were very different from those of Jews and Christians, they did run together when it came to sexual relations between family members. That was deplored by Gentiles as well as by Jews. But Paul had learned from Chloe's people that a man in the church was in an ongoing sexual relationship with his stepmother. They were sleeping together. Paul could hardly believe it. He's had to deal with adultery and prostitution and homosexuality many, many times, but never with this. Even the Gentiles wouldn't put up with this. And yet here it's going on in the Corinthian church, and they're doing nothing about it. Okay, so that's background to chapter 5. Let's read it aloud. I'll read it aloud. You follow along. 1 Corinthians 5, verse 1. It's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you and of a kind that doesn't even occur among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you are proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit. And I have already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you're assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, and I am with you in spirit, probably when this letter was being read, and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let's keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you'd have to leave the world. But now I'm writing you that you mustn't associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man, do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Right here at the outset. Well, let me back up. The Apostle Paul was not a man who was easily surprised. But this surprised him. A man was sleeping with his dad's wife. Now, we don't know what happened to the dad, whether he was dead or alive. But Paul says... 
that kind of sexual immorality doesn't even occur among the pagans. Now we have to pause right there for a moment. So I know this, this train of thought has hardly started down the track, but we need to get off the train for just a moment, stand on the platform and make an observation, and then we'll get back on the train and ride it to where it leads. The observation is not about the main point of this passage, but about something that Paul says in passing. It has important biblical and theological ramifications. Paul says that this kind of sexual immorality is condemned even among the pagans. That's how the NIV translates it. But the word pagans is really the common word for Gentiles. So common, it appears 162 times in the New Testament and over 1,000 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament. So Paul is simply saying that even Gentiles don't approve this kind of behavior, and we know what their sexual morals are like. But why would he put it that way? You miss it in the NIV because they translated it pagans. Not even the Gentiles. Weren't the Corinthians Gentiles? Paul's answer would be, and here's the observation, no. At least they're not anymore. Later in this letter, in a remarkable line, Paul writes, you know that when you were Gentiles, same word, translated pagans here, when you were Gentiles, somehow or other, you were influenced and led astray to mute idols. When you were Gentiles? From Paul's perspective, the Corinthians were no longer Gentiles. They ceased to be Gentiles when they came to God through faith in Jesus. Well, if they weren't Gentiles anymore, what were they? Were they Jews? Weren't those the only two options available? No. To these same Corinthians, he later writes, don't cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God. For Paul, the world was inhabited by Jews, by Gentiles, and since Jesus, by the new people of God, the church. See, the coming of Christ altered everything, even bringing a new people and a new kind of humanity into existence. That's fleshed out by Paul in much greater detail in Ephesians chapters 2 and 3. But I mention it here because it formed the backdrop to Paul's thinking about the church. When we ignore the groundbreaking formation of a new people of God made possible through Jesus, we seriously underestimate the triumph of the cross. Okay, let's get back on that train and see where it's leading. Paul's upset that something like this is going on among the new people of God, but he's even more upset that the church has done nothing about it. Now, don't miss that. The emphasis is not on this man's sin. And I say this man because Paul is concerned about the man's behavior, not the woman's. And that almost certainly means that the man was a Christian, a member of the church, and the woman was not. Paul doesn't rebuke non-Christians. As I say, the emphasis is not on the man's sin. Paul only mentions the man's sin once and only in the space of a few words, and he never mentions it again. And that's the thing about Paul. He is totally realistic about sin. He knows how badly tangled up in sin we've all been and how we get tripped up by it still. It's not the sin that surprises Paul as much as it is the church's attitude about it. Look at verse 2. And you are proud. I don't think he was saying the Corinthians were proud of the man's sin. They were proud in spite of the man's sin. 
They were proud of their wisdom and sophistication. They were so spiritual and wise. They'd already arrived. But Paul says, the fact that there's sin among you and you're not brokenhearted about it suggests that you're neither spiritual nor wise. Now, verses 3 through 5 are extremely difficult. And scholars have not come to any kind of consensus about them. The Greek is confusing. Paul's sentence is unusually complex. But just let me mention that in verse 3, the word translated past judgment is not the same word. It means something different from the word that we heard Paul use in the previous passage when he said, I care very little if I'm judged by you. In this passage, Paul has reached a decision. And it's not a decision about the man's fate but about the church's course of action. He's not putting himself in God's place to pass judgment on the man. He's putting himself in the church's place to judge what the church ought to do. That's an important distinction. People often say, you don't have any right to judge me. And of course, they say that when they know they've done something that deserves judgment, right? Do we ever say you don't have any right to judge me except when we know we deserve it? But be that as it may, they're still right. I have no right to judge them. But I have a responsibility to judge what action I ought to take. And the church has a responsibility to judge what actions it ought to take. Here Paul says, here's the action to take. Hand this man over to Satan. So that the flesh, literally, may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. I think handing him over to Satan means removing him from the church of God, kicking him out. Or as Paul puts it variously, put him out of the fellowship, verse 2. Don't associate with him, verse 11. Expel him, verse 13. That's strong language. Remove him from the church where he has some measure of protection and send him back to Satan's domain in the hope that what he suffers there will turn him back to God. There's been a difference of scholarly opinion about what it means to hand a man over to Satan. And I'm not sure that I know. I think it means to excommunicate him from the church. But different people have different ideas. What we mustn't miss is this. This was serious. Sin in a person's life and in the life of a local church is deadly serious. We think the worst thing going on in our life is our job or our health or the betrayal we suffered. And those things can be horrible. I don't mean to minimize that. But sin, our own sin, is worse. We make all kinds of excuses for it, but it's worse. It damages us, and it damages the people around us in ways that are pervasive and yet often undetectable. It compromises the way we handle our jobs and our health and the betrayal we suffered. If there's something in your life that you know is wrong and you're just going on, something you know displeases God and you're just acting like it's no big deal, that thing is doing damage to you and to all the rest of us. Here's the thing about sin. It's infectious. It spreads. It spreads through a person's life through his thoughts and attitudes and actions, and through a person's church. Paul likens it to yeast. Well, not really yeast. 
That's the word that the NIV uses to help modern-day readers get the picture. But the King James Version's leaven is a more literal translation. Leaven and yeast aren't exactly the same thing. Yeast is a rapidly reproducing single-cell fungus that produces carbon dioxide and alcohol and causes bread to rise. In Paul's time, yeast was rare. You couldn't go out and buy yeast. So what people would do is save a little of last week's unbaked dough, allow it to ferment, and then add it to this week's dough so that it would also ferment and rise. And then they take a little bit of that dough out and save it. We call that sourdough. Paul is saying that sin works like that old fermented dough. It rapidly reproduces and spreads in an individual's life. Until all of his life, his thought life, his emotional life, his relational life, has been affected by it, and it spreads in his church. Now, I don't think Paul, the particular sin that Paul has in mind, as he said this, is the sexual sin of verse 1, contrary to what most commentators think. I think, rather, it's the sin of pride that he has repeatedly mentioned throughout this letter, and he mentions again in chapter 4, verse 18, chapter 4, verse 19, chapter 5, verse 2, and then in the sentence immediately prior to this one in verse 6. Pride rapidly reproduces itself. It spreads through a group the way yeast spreads through dough. If I show off my knowledge to you, you'll show off your knowledge to me. If I flex my muscles, you'll flex yours bigger. If I drop a name, you'll drop more prominent names. Now, that goes on all the time, right? In culture, everywhere. And it sounds pretty harmless. But the thing about pride is that of all the sins, it's the most anti-God. Pride isolates a person from God. It puts up a barrier to keep him out. And when God is kept out, all kinds of other things enter in including ugly sexual sins and racial injustice and deceit and greed and envy and malice. And in the wake of these sins, all the attendant relational conflicts and marriage troubles and emotional difficulties come in like a flood. When a person's lived like that for a while, their sins seem less sinful. They get used to them. But their pains do not seem less painful. In fact, they get worse. When, when we go on with, with pride, unconfessed, unacknowledged, with sin, unacknowledged, we begin justifying attitudes and behaviors that we deplore in other people. And we forget who we really are while we live like something we're not. That's why Paul says in verse 7, Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. As you look at this passage, verses 6 through 8 are an illustration. Paul's using an illustration with these Gentiles, but he's using an illustration from his Jewish past, from the Passover festival. He could still remember how exciting and fun it was when he was a boy. See, before the great Passover celebration, every year, every family in Israel would go through their entire house looking for any leavened bread dough. On the night of the 14th in the month of Nisan, they would light lamps. So after it was dark, they would light lamps, and parents and children would search every inch of the house. Chrysostom says they even looked into the mouse holes. For a Jewish child, it was almost like an Easter egg hunt is for kids today. There was an excitement about it. 
When they found leavened dough, and every family had some, if you didn't have some, you better go get it so you would have it so your children could find it. When they found it, they disposed of it in a, in a ceremony. That was a picture embedded deeply in their subconscious for finding and disposing sin in a person's life. So Paul tells us, as the new people of God, the church, make a clean sweep. Get rid of the old leaven. Start out as a new batch. See, Christians don't celebrate Passover once a year like Jews did. They live Passover every day. Every breath a Christian takes, a New Testament scholar said, is a silent Passover hymn of gratitude to the God who has acted to save the world through Jesus, the Passover lamb. Now notice the words in verse 7. Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. Sin, and especially the sin of pride, keeps us from being who we really are, who God made us to be in Christ. We don't get rid of the sin in our lives in order to be forgiven and made righteous, but because we have been forgiven and made righteous through the sacrifice of Christ, our Passover lamb. We get rid of sin in order to become ourselves, to become who we really are, and not just as individuals, but as the church of God. I mentioned earlier that Paul had to deal with sexual attitudes and behaviors in all the churches he planted. I can't imagine going into a church and saying, no, you really have got to stop going to the brothel. That's not a good thing. No, you can't commit adultery. That's not good. He had to do that everywhere he went, and he had to do it in Corinth, which was even known among the Gentile world as a place where all kinds of sexual behaviors were going on. Paul had already talked to them when he was with them, And then later in a letter that he sent to them that's been lost to us, but to which he refers in our text. In that letter, he told them not to hang out with people who are having sex outside marriage. Now he has to clarify that. He says, I'm not talking about non-Christians. What they do is their own business. But what a Christian does is the church's business. So in the strongest way possible, he says, expel the wicked man from among you. Now, what is there here that we can apply to our lives. I'm going to mention three things. I'm sure there are other things, but I'm going to mention three. <clears throat> the first is this. We have to deal with sin. It's no light matter. It's so serious that the Apostle Paul ordered the church to excommunicate the remorseless Christian who was sinning. Kick him out. Sin is contagious. It is destructive. It will damage the community of Christ. We mustn't ignore it in ourselves And when we see it in someone else, we must pray for them with all seriousness. Not gossip about them, but pray for them. So the Apostle John says, if anyone sees his brother commit a sin that doesn't lead to death, he should pray, and God will give him life. We should pray with deep concern, and when it's appropriate, we should go to our brother or sister who's sinning and urge them to change. Brothers, this is Paul writing to the Galatians. If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. I want you to do that for me. When is it appropriate to talk to a person about his or her sinful actions? When we are living in Christ's spirit, when we can do it gently for the purpose of restoration, not to get it off our chest, but gently and for the purpose of restoration and can do it with love. 
Okay, that's the first thing. Sin serious. And don't immediately jump to the sin in somebody else's life. Look first here. Say, God, show me me. Second, the text applies to us in this way. We must accept the fact that people outside the church will have different moral values than those within the church. Some of them will not see anything wrong with casual sex or pornography or same-sex relationships. Some of them are going to drink too much, will smoke pot. Others will live for money. Paul doesn't want us to avoid those people. He's not calling us to judge them. He's not urging us to change their minds or change the laws. What those people need is not a judge but a savior. They don't need a new moral code. They need the cross. Instead of trying to convince people they're wrong, we need to convince them that they're missing out. Let me say that again. Instead of trying to convince people that they're wrong, we need to convince them that they're missing out. And the only way to do that is to follow Jesus into a life that is rich and beautiful and good. Don't bother telling people they're wrong unless you're ready to show them a better way. A life in loving community with others who are committed to the Lord Jesus. One last thing. Deal with pride in your life. God hates pride. He doesn't hate it because he sees us as would-be rivals. He hates it because pride prevents us from receiving the good work that he wants to do in our lives. Pride excludes us from grace. Pride blinds us to reality and deafens us to what God and others are saying to us. Pride makes us opponents of God. That is not a good place to be in. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. That same line is repeated three times, Old Testament and New. I remember once going into my study and closing my door, as I do almost every morning to have time with the Lord. As usual, I began my prayer time with a reading of Scripture, but my mind, you know how it is, was soon in flight. It was going off this way and that. But going off in one particular way, it kept going back to this ongoing disagreement Karen and I were having. And frankly, I was angry. And I started ticking off all the things that she was wrong about. And I got quite a list. And I went on like that for a while, and I thought, now i got to quit this. And I tried to read and pray, and, and that lasted for about 10 seconds, and then my mind was off there again. She was wrong, and I was right. And she wasn't just wrong, she was guilty. Guilty of something. It was as if she wanted to cause trouble. Now, maybe I wasn't all right, but I knew she was all wrong. And I went on like that for a while. I'd try to read and pray, and then my mind would go back, And I would start rehearsing my righteous and my wife's unrighteous words and actions. And then it was as if, out of the blue, the Lord impressed on me a truth with such clarity that it could have been spoken to me aloud. And it was just this. You're proud. And as soon as those words came to mind, I knew they were true. Whether Karen was right or wrong... I was definitely wrong. I was proud. And my pride was preventing God from working in the situation. 
which would only get worse if I didn't admit it and seek forgiveness. Whether in a church, a marriage, a parent-child relationship, a friendship, or a workplace, pride is the beginning of bad things. And we are all, to one degree or another, proud. But when we're aware of it, we must confess it and ask for forgiveness and cleansing. See, if pride is the beginning of bad things, that confession is the beginning of good things. If we confess our sins, even the sin of pride, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I leave that word with you. Let's pray. Give you a moment to talk to the Lord. Lord, I pray for those of us much loved by you who are today far from you and without hope and without joy. Lord, none of us can ever get back apart from your help. So would you grace us, bring us close to you in the light of your holiness and your love Show us ourselves. Give us courage to deal with the things we see. To be the people who not just look like you, but can enjoy being with you. I ask you to do this in Jesus' good, sweet name.